0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: On this episode of News World, on Thursday, January 19th, the U.S. Treasury Department announced the United States has reached its debt limit and they would begin a series of accounting measures to keep the United States from breaching its borrowing cap. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent a letter to congressional leadership about the debt limit saying, quote, Dear Mr. Speaker, I write to keep you apprised of actions the Treasury Department is taking in regard to the debt limit. In my letter of January 13, 2023, I noted that Public Law 117 increased the statutory debt limit to a level of $31.381 trillion and informed you that beginning on January 19, the outstanding debt of the United States was projected to reach the statutory limit. This letter serves to notify you, pursuant to 5 U.S.C. 8348.12, of the extraordinary measures Treasury began using today. She concludes by saying, quote, I respectfully urge Congress to act promptly to protect the full faith and credit of the United States. So as we approach the debt ceiling debate, I feel strongly it's important we know the history of our national debt how we got to $31.3 trillion of national debt today and what we should be doing about it. So I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest, Thomas Honig. He is the former vice chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. He was with the Federal Reserve for 38 years. He is currently a distinguished senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Tom, welcome back, and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. Well, Newt,
1: thank you for having me. It's good to be back. An interesting topic.
2: I was going to say, you know so much more about this than I do, that I'm really grateful because I think all of our listeners will find this to be a very informative and educational conversation. So could you start with sort of a history of the national debt?
1: Well, it's pretty straightforward. The Congress allocates spending, the executive branch signs the bill and we have a new spending bill and it's more than the revenues that will generate through their tax program and deficit results and the deficit has to be funded now traditionally when you do that you have to go to the private sector and borrow those funds and that puts upward pressure on interest rates as you take resources from the private sector and that causes the public and everyone to become realize that debt isn't free, and therefore you have to find ways to address it going forward in terms of whether you're going to watch your spending and or your tax system. What I think has happened actually even before the pandemic over the last more than a decade, because in 2007, 28, 29, the deficit in the United States was roughly, let's say, 10 or 11 trillion dollars now we're at $31.381 trillion, you know that something has gone out. And that's something I think is any kind of external discipline on the government, the House, the Senate, and the administration to kind of watch the spending and watch the revenues to make sure there's some balance here. I understand deficits are sometimes necessary, but in the long term, you need to address those to make sure they don't get out of hand. And the absence of discipline is there is no longer a external standard in terms of the demand for our debt. We are the reserve currency, so it's allowed us to issue this debt globally. The Monetary Policy Authority has kept the borrowing costs so attractive that the government felt very free to borrow more money, and it has, and the Congress itself, and I mean both parties. If the Democrats want to spend more money and know they can't get tax increases, they spend it anyway. The Republicans do not want tax increases, Can't stop the spending increases or won't. You end up with ever greater taxes. Plus, two thirds of the spending budget is in entitlements, which are indexed to inflation. They're mandatory spending. They're indexed, so the spending is going to grow. If you're going to address this issue long term, you have to come to some kind of a solution that limits the spending programs going forward, or ties taxes to better control of spending, something. I think you know that because you were a leader. And now I think the pay-go system that put some discipline back in the thing, that's the sort of thing we need going forward, in my opinion.
2: I was very proud of the fact that as Speaker, I launched the effort that led to the only four consecutive balanced budgets in your lifetime. And actually, when I left office, Alan Greenspan as chairman of the Fed, you may remember, actually had a working group trying to figure out if we paid off the federal debt how would they manage the money supply? That seems so weird today.
1: I have to tell you this. I remember that. I was on the FOMC at the time, and I kind of chuckled because I said, you know, this is wonderful that we have this situation, but it's not going to (laughs) last. And it didn't.
2: No, it didn't. But, you know, the only time I think we've ever fully paid off the national debt was Andrew Jackson. And there was a brief period where there was no money, and he actually took the surplus and gave it out to the indebted states. But that also created a certain level of instability. It's a very complex story. One of the things I think people don't fully get is, you know, the debt ceiling was raised seven times under Obama. It was raised seven times under George W. Bush. The process of raising it, as I understand it, historically prior to about 1917, Congress would literally have to authorize each bond issue, And they decided that was too big a pain. So they went to a debt ceiling control model, which we've now had with us for over 100 years. I think one of the things people get confused by is, let's say that Secretary Yellen is right. She said, basically, they technically crossed the line last week, but they can manage the cash flow and they can manage the way in which bills come due, probably up through sometime in June, without technically having a problem. What would the real world consequences be? if the United States was unable to find a solution?
1: Well, I think it'd be pretty dramatic because, number one, people don't understand. So that means it's clear in people's minds that the government would not pay interest on its debt. It's held globally, not only domestically. So that would bring uncertainty forward. Also, you have to borrow to pay your millions of government employees. So that would be a question mark. and I think all that uncertainty would undermine the economy. If we are in danger of a recession, that might actually make it deeper. So I think there are serious consequences from failing to increase the deficit.
2: If the U.S. actually technically defaulted, that is, was unable to pay the bonds as they rolled over, which is something you've seen Argentina do several times and other countries, but given the size of our economy and the role of the dollar worldwide, How big a shock to the world fiscal system would an American default be?
1: It's hard to say, I guess, but in the sense, it would be significant because it is the global reserve currency. And that currency is, shall we say, supported by the fact that everyone knows it is a reliable debt out there. And the US can, in fact, fund it, even if it has to borrow more. And if you take that away, people say, well, what do I do next? and uncertainty undermines economic systems in the US. But because we are the reserve currency, I think more broadly. So I think it is a serious issue. And I don't think waiting until you have up against a debt ceiling is any way to manage the responsibility of an international reserve currency. So the Congress, both parties have to come and say, we can't go on like this. We've got to get this thing worked out. And I do think it's a little bit like calling Wolf now. We've done it so many times, like you said, seven times under Obama, seven times under Bush. I've seen standoffs before. We've had temporary shutdowns. And then you open it up again and people say, well, it'll be okay. So what everyone expects is that there'll be a lot of yelling and screaming over the next six months and that there'll be some kind of a compromise that will come forward and that we will go forward. That's the assumption people are operating on, although they're not quite sure. And the less sure they become that, then the more, I think, risk there is to the domestic economy and to the global economy.
2: Just to make it clear for our listeners, isn't it true that being the world's reserve currency is an enormous economic advantage for the United States? Absolutely. When the pound was the world reserve currency, it gave Britain enormous leverage. And now we've had, for over a half century, all the advantages of being the safest place in the world, which is why my daughter, who lives in Key Biscayne, sees an amazing number of Latin Americans who it's a flight to safety. I mean, they trust the United States when they don't trust necessarily their local government. And so it pours capital into the U.S. in a way that I think we don't fully appreciate. So in a sense, if we could work backwards, we have to find a way to solve this. Not solving it is not an option.
1: It's not an option. And for us in the long run, it's absolutely critical because you can print money. And that's basically what we're doing here. You can print money until you've actually debauched your currency. And then what do you do? It's not something that happens tomorrow. It takes decades, perhaps. But just think about it. I mean, we've increased our debt and therefore the amount of money... From $10 trillion to $31 trillion in a little more than a decade, if we continue at that rate, you are inviting inflation, you are inviting loss of confidence in your currency. Now, our advantage also is the rest of the world is managing as poorly as we are, and therefore, it still makes us kind of what I call grading on the curve, it still keeps us a preferred currency. But you can't assume that in perpetuity and be a world-class economy, I think.
2: There is a point where I mean the dollar worldwide, literally in twenty and hundred dollar bill units, is a sort of an invisible currency in virtually every country in the world. But that's because they actually think it'll be worth a dollar, and yet when you start getting seven, eight, nine percent inflation, you literally are basically cheating the people who are holding the money.
1: Not only that, but when you get nine percent inflation, you're cheating the world that holds it, you're cheating your own citizens who hold it, and you're taxing your citizens. So it's a very irresponsible path to be on, I think. And, you know, the other part of it is it picks up its own momentum. We are indexed two-thirds of our government to inflation. So that means the debt has to go up. How are you going to fund it? Secondly, the interest on the debt has to go up. And as interest rates are rising, it's going to go up extremely rapidly. So that's going to cause greater pressures going forward. And where's this money going to come from? More printing. And that's where you get yourself in this vicious cycle. And I think you decrease the value of your currency over time to a point where it becomes less of a sought-after international currency. Now, again, it takes time, but we're working on it.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the Congressional Budget Office has been warning since, I think, 2014 that the current spending cycle is unsustainable and will cripple the economy and lower the standard of living.
1: They're absolutely right. I mean, we're increasing our carry so rapidly that we will, in fact, slow. Here's one of my concerns. The Federal Reserve has to walk away from this themselves. They have to provide some discipline. They have been monetizing this debt for some time now. That's allowed the government to fund us at very low rates. That cannot continue. People have to realize this coming out of their pocket so that we don't just spend openly and freely. We know there has to be consequences to it. And we've got to learn that sooner rather than later, is what my point was going to be.
2: When you realize that in the not too distant future, at the rate we're going, paying interest on the debt will be larger than the defense budget. Absolutely. So we'll be taxing our children and grandchildren. Not to pay off the debt, but just to pay interest every year. Think
1: about it. You have to pay, let's just say, roughly $400 billion. Soon our interest on the date will be over $800 billion. And if we keep accumulating, and it looks like we will, trillion dollars of new deficits every year, we're going to be paying on interest a trillion dollars, and it will exceed the defense budget and other discretionary items. The big part of that will be then the entitlements program will balloon. We are on a very dangerous path, in my opinion.
2: Part of the fight this year is going to be between those who are willing to raise the debt ceiling if there are reforms on spending, and those who are demanding that the debt ceiling be raised with no reforms. And I have a hunch that the next month or two, that's going to be the central debate.
1: I think so. It's going to be finger pointing for the next month or two. You have to raise it. And the truth is, they are going to have to raise the ceiling because the money is Committed. I mean, the debates that took place in December over increasing both defense and non-defense discretionary items was the debate that said, are we going to spend ever more money? Understandably important debate. And the agreement was, yes, we are. So now we know the debt and they knew that debt would be exceeded, that ceiling would be exceeded. And now we're in that situation. So you've agreed to spend it. You're spending it. And now you have to fund it. And you know the discussion, and I think it is, on, okay, how do we reestablish some kind of discipline around future spending that obviates the need to have these frequent debt ceiling increases? And some people say, well, just remove it. And that is an option. But at the same time, I'm not sure that would provide any additional discipline to the spending side. So that has to be thought through.
2: President Biden has issued a non-negotiation kind of initial stance, but since he actually negotiated in 2011 on the debt ceiling, I'm not so sure that this isn't sort of the opening round rather than the final argument, because I don't think he can get it out of the house without very substantial changes.
1: Well, I certainly hope it's the first, shall we say, salvo over the field. And I hope both sides are saying we're going to see how we get to a compromise But both sides realize that they have to get to a compromise. They're past not being able to do that because the debt's going to only increase. It's indexed. It's going to increase. So how do you not only raise it, but how do you get a mechanism to keep it from going without some kind of pay-go, some kind of discipline around our spending? And if we want to do tax decreases, how we do it, how we pay for it that. Whichever view you have, and I think there are important differences there, but how you're going to negotiate through that, I think has to be figured out now. And this saying, well, we're not going to talk to you. This is it. It won't work. And the American people will suffer. And so will our international position.
2: I wonder if this isn't a pretty good time to start raising the point of we ought to get on a track that would move us towards a balanced budget, and start thinking through what the reforms would have to be in order to have a government we could actually afford. Does that seem too pie in the sky to you?
1: I hope not, because it's essential. I mean, it's absolutely essential we begin to do that again.
2: Let me just tell you,
1: that brought some meaningful discipline, agreed upon, and it helped us address the deficits, and we came towards a, a balanced budget. If you think of the pandemic, bail, shall we say crisis management in terms of the spending, there were transfer payments, not just to those who were unemployed, but to people who were well employed that were receiving monthly checks, our excess savings, that is savings above the long-term average, and increased over $2.5 trillion. So what we did is we said, well, this money's free. We want to make sure we stimulate the economy. We'll put all this money out, even to people who are working. So there was the absence of discipline made the ability to spend, I think, irresponsibly more easy. And you have to take that out of it. You have to take that out first, and then you have to bring greater stability into how we spend our money. It's not free. It takes resources. It transfers resources. It does disincent people from doing tasks they might do had they not had the transfer payment brought to them. This is the time to seriously think, responsibly about how we put more people back into the labor market, how we discipline our spending, how we pay for our spending. These are things that I think have fallen by the wayside and need to be brought back sooner rather than later. Or I think we undermine this wonderful economy in the long term.
2: In the America's New Majority project that we've been working on, where we've done a lot of focus groups, a lot of polls, there's about 76% support for having a work requirement if you get money. We found when we did that in 1996 on welfare, people just streamed into the private sector market and got off of welfare because. If they're actually going to have to do something for it, well, I might as well go get a job. And I think there are 14 or 16 states now where the amount they subsidize is so great that you lose money if you go to work, which is crazy. I'm aware of those studies,
1: and I think it is crazy. I think it undermines your ability to produce as a nation. We have 10 million jobs and 6 million job seekers. I don't think we've been out of balance that bad in my memory, that's for sure, So why don't we think about that in terms of the supply of labor and what's keeping that supply from increasing? Is it really that we don't have laborers or is it that we have incentives that keep labor on the sidelines? At least it deserves a lot of
2: attention by the Congress of the United States. There have been five members already who have proposed balanced budget amendments. Representative Scott Perry, I think, has a very interesting one which he called Proposing a Balanced Budget Amendment to the Constitution, requiring that each agency and department's funding is justified. And he goes through how he would require us to get to a balanced budget and what we do. Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania also introduced a resolution called Proposing an Amendment to the Constitution of the United States to Provide for Balanced Budgets. Representative Derek Van Orden from Wisconsin introduced a similar resolution. And Representative Jay Obernotti from California introduced a resolution. Representative Zach Nunn from Iowa introduced a resolution. So you're beginning to see across the whole country, members step forward and say, you know, let's have a debate about whether or not we're going to reform the government and get back to actually paying our own way rather than borrowing from our children and grandchildren. And I think this may become one of the biggest issues in this Congress by the time the debate really gets rolling.
1: They need to be introduced and they need to be discussed and they need to be debated. And even if you don't get balanced budget amendment, you get the discussion out there. And perhaps you get legislation that, again, like your period, says, wait a minute, we've got to get this plan together and we've got to bring our budget back into balance. You know, there are always exceptions, but here's the difficulty. I understand the exceptions. I mean, wartime, yes, the pandemic for part of it, but it becomes a what I call the entry point into forever subsidies from the government, forever payments, transfer payments that you can't back out of because there's no rule that says, wait a minute, you've got to balance the budget within a certain time period. Or if you're going to increase the spending, you've got to cut back here. You've got to bring those rules back. Or I think we are going to be having these standoffs again in two or three years when the next ceiling is broken and it will be unless you have some kind of bind around the spending and taxing of the United States, within the United States.
2: When we set out to balance the budget, we deliberately sidestepped Social Security because we knew how the left would use it, and we knew we couldn't sustain it. Margaret Thatcher, in all the privatization she did, never touched the National Health Service for the same reason. There are certain things you can't do. But we were able to reform Medicare in a presidential election year with AARP's support. And part of the reason was we convinced everybody how serious we were and everybody said, well, you know, if everybody's going to give a little, I guess I've got to get a little. So you create a totally different psychological environment for this kind of conversation.
1: Absolutely. You have to have shared sacrifice, I call it. You know it's important. Like you say, for your children and grandchildren, you know you have to do these things. So let's get started doing it and do it in a way that we all have confidence we're sharing in this adjustment. And you get that by talking to one another and knowing that is in the Congress, instead of saying you're bad, say, hey, we know we have this issue. We've got to find a way to do exactly what you're saying. And, and it sounds naive. Without that, I don't know how you're going to get there.
2: It's like any family. I mean, you got the family has to be engaged, the family has to feel like, hey, this is important to all of us and I'm going to do my share. You're exactly right. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Otherwise, it doesn't work and falls apart. I want to thank you for joining me. I think with your help, hopefully our listeners have gained a better understanding both of the national debt, the gradual problem we're sliding into, the debt ceiling, and the conversation we all need to have to use the debt ceiling as an opportunity to start turning the corner on runaway spending. It's always great to have you. You're so knowledgeable and have such a solid background. I want to thank you again for joining me on Newt's World and for sharing with us.
1: Thank you for having me, Good to be with you.
2: Thank you to my guest, Thomas Honig. You can learn more about the death ceiling debate on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
1: The Motor
0: Racing Network. Zumo Zumo Play.